Assalamu alaikum and welcome to Constitutional Matters with myself, Zakir Desai, for the sixth episode of our new show marking the 20th anniversary of the Constitution of the Republic of South Africa. In our previous episodes, we discussed the history of the Constitution, transformative constitutionalism, the right to education, the limitation of rights, and last week, the right to property. And in this episode of Constitution Matters, we discuss the right to equality. And in studio with me, we have Uzair Adams from ProBono.org, Ellen Bariwondo, legal intern at ProBono.org, Max Taylor and Cian Fagan, both candidate attorneys at Bowman's Law. We remind our listeners to join in the conversation by WhatsApping us on 072-238-0712 or SMS us on 47913. To begin the conversation, Section 9.1, which speaks to the right to equality, says everyone is equal before the law and the right to equal protection and to benefit of that law. Max, to begin, can you clarify what the Constitution means by equal protection and benefit of the law? Sure. So that's a a fairly standard um, liberal right, which are in many constitutions around the world. Basically just saying that every human being is entitled to protection of the law. Um, So whether you're of a different race or gender, um, the law won't won't look at those sort of factors when it applies the law. Um, our constitution is perhaps quite um, radical in that section 9.2 section nine goes on to say that equality includes the full and equal enjoyment of all rights and freedoms. Um, and that goes further than most constitutions um, in that it speaks to the distinction between having a right on paper versus actually being able to enjoy a right. Um, And so, for example, you might have various rights in the Constitution, but without any access to lawyers or representation, it might not be possible to enjoy those rights. And so our Constitution goes further by providing um, for the the full and equal enjoyment of all rights and freedoms. Now, see, and we know that Section 34 and Section 38 sort of draws on Section 9 in terms of equality before the law. Do these two sections of the Constitution impose an obligation, both morally and constitutionally, on the state to provide not only the mechanisms, but also the substantial government-run and funded legal aid organizations in order to meet the requirements of Section 9? So I think that question really depends on how you interpret Section 34. Um, Section 34 says that everyone has the right to have any dispute that can be resolved by the application of law decided in a fair public hearing before a court or where appropriate another independent and impartial tribunal forum. Um, so I think the difference here really turns on whether you interpret that right to mean a right to access those, insti- those the courts or a, a different tribunal or forum, or whether that right actually um, gives every person a right to the actual means of which to take the matter to court, so the financial means behind it. So what the question you're asking is whether um, everyone has the right to free legal representation. Um, and in our, according to our constitution and in terms of section 9 and the right to equality, I would say that there's definitely a constitutional obligation on the state to progressively implement um, uh, certain government-run and government-funded 
organizations mm -hmm. but I think the key there is that it has to be progressive implementation um, they at, at, at the moment given resource and capacity limitations uh, it cannot be said that there is a constitutional um, obligation on the state to have these institutions available for every person um, right now. Um, I think what's also important there is um, the distinction between um, uh, so, so for example a civil or non-criminal case um, so if you if you notice in section 35 of the constitution um, every accused person does actually have the right to free legal representation in a criminal law context but that right is not expressly provided for in section 34 in terms of the right to access court and civil litigation and Zaid, if I could bring you into the conversation, in terms of unequal access to justice, which section of the South African population would you say is most disadvantaged? And do you think that it has changed since uh, the dawn of democracy? Um, thank you for having us on air tonight. Um, I must say that the section of South African society that is most disadvantaged by this issue will be our poor and our marginalized people. Um, these will be our people who are uneducated, um, who don't have access to resources and are often people who live in rural areas um, where they are unable to access service points um, that are made available by the government um, and so oftentimes these are also people who are unemployed um, what is the second part of your question Zakira? so do you feel that uh, following the dawn of democracy do you feel that South Africans a certain a certain category of South Africans do not have sufficient access to justice <laughs> Yes and no, Zakira. Um, I can say that there are people, the, the classes of people that I just described, um, these are the people who are most disadvantaged and these are the people who have limited access to justice, so to say. Um, but since the dawn of democracy, I can say that um, many efforts have been made um, in terms of trying to make access to justice a lot more accessible to those people. Um, and like my colleague um, Cian said, it is progressive in nature and mm -hmm. we have made progress. Ellen, do you share that view that uh, we have made progress as a new democracy in, uh, in ensuring that all South Africans have access to justice in terms of the, the, the judicial system? Thank you for that, um, Sakura. Um, I would say there's been progress quite a, uh, in some areas, but there's still a lack in terms of civil litigation. Mm. Because you find that the legal aid is mostly, I would say, 90, 90 odd percent um, litigating criminal matters. So the majority of the section you find which uh, re requires civil assistance are still falling through the gaps. And there is quite a number of cases. I think I would say with what I've uh, experienced in Kailicha, people coming in and requiring civil assistance and they would have gone for five, six years trying to get the same matter litigated and without uh, resources and like access points where they can get uh, where they can get assistance. So I would say there's still quite a lot that needs to be done, even mm -hmm. though there's there's progress but a lot still needs to be done. Max, Ellen has mentioned that there are many people who have fallen through the gaps. 
why do you think it is that you have people who even though they are courts you do have a number of legal aids they continue to be sitting in the situation where even though they they have legal aid access they, they, the 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 court system doesn't allow for them to actually see justice and you find people being extremely um, just run down where they don't feel that their matter will ever be heard thanks yeah so I think there are two issues at play here I mean before even getting to courts um, as Sean mentioned earlier, because there's an emphasis on providing legal representation um, in the case of criminal matters, in non-criminal matters, your family law, employment law matters, um, it's often hard for the state to provide free legal representation there because the focus is elsewhere. And I think in those cases, um, even before getting to court, sometimes it's difficult to get representation um, to help you even find a settlement or to avoid litigation. The second issue you speak to are um, issues in the court systems itself. Um, and I think um, there have been some strides made towards improving justice there. The introduction of district magistrates, courts, and the Chief Justice has tried to have some oversight over case management. Um, but I think a lot of this comes down to um, a difficult difficulty with resources and capacity. Cian Uzaid earlier mentioned the fact that there are the poorer peak community, there is the poorer community who, who, who suffers the most. Is it then correct to suggest that uh, the judicial system is only for the elite? So I think this also goes to the barriers that are inherent in our um, legal system um, in its entirety. Um, it's the legal system or the judicial system is definitely not there just for the elite however um, there are certain barriers and obviously with our history and given that the uh, that indigent people and the poor um, vast majority are those that are coming into conflict with the law more often um, and the fact that they they face the the most the, like basically the uh, most barriers in the sense that generally they'll be living in um, geographical locations that are isolated um, they don't have the funds necessary to um, uh, fund legal representation and often um, people will be illiterate and they won't be able to um, they don't even know what rights they have for enforcement in our, in our judicial system to start with. I think all of this um, coupled with the fact that um, our uh, we, we don't have the, the capacity or the legal resources to provide free um, legal aid to every person that wants to enforce a specific right in our court system. I think that, yes, it, it definitely it does lead one to perceive that our judicial system is aimed at the elite who have money to um, fund long protracted and delayed litigation. Uzair, if you could come into this conversation once again, uh, just sure. in the last 30 seconds before we take an, uh, our, our break for Maghrib, do you agree with what uh, CN has just said? Um, I do agree, Zakira, but I must admit that um, I do feel that uh, something should be done around educating mm. our communities. I think we could continue this this conversation sure. after the after the work. I wouldn't want to break your, your thought. Uh, so... Welcome back to Constitutional Matters after the break. as 
Assalamu alaikum and welcome back to Constitution Matters with myself, Dakira Desai, and joining me in studio is Zaid Adams, Ellen Bariwando, Max Taylor, and Sian Fagan. In this episode of Constitution Matters, we discuss the right to equality. And we remind our listeners to join in the conversation by WhatsApping us on 072-238-0712 or SMSing us on 47913. Now, before the break, we were discussing whether or not the judicial system is restricted to the elite. Sian, I know you had quite a lot to say about this during the break. Would you like to elaborate? Yes, thank you. Um, I think what's important is just to note that while there might be a perception that our um, judicial system is reserved for the elite, um, the state and the three branches of government have definitely gone um, far in providing for different mechanisms over the past few years that do try and include our um, the majority of the population and the, um, the less fortunate. Um, some examples I'd say would, would be um, the in a labor law context, the Commission for Conciliation, Mediation and Arbitration. Um, this provides um, indigent people and anyone really with labor law disputes without um, charging a fee. Um, to It allows them um, the chance to resolve their disputes in an informal type uh, manner. Um, we also have the small claims court where you actually aren't allowed to have legal representation and um, you basically anything up to a claim of 15,000 rand can be heard in the small claims court without legal representation. Um, and then on the other side we also have legislation to the effect that it's, it's the Contingency Fees Act and that now permits an agreement to be made between um, a legal practitioner and a client where you only charge fees in the event of a successful um, litigation. Mm. Um, so they definitely, while there is that perception and while the elite definitely do benefit um, more so than our um, poorer population um, from the judicial system as they are able to fund their litigation, there are mechanisms in place that do aim to include um I think the important question is whether or not the citizens are educated about uh, these different mechanisms that they have access to. Max or even Ellen, you know, as a part of probono.org, do you feel that our citizens are educated enough to understand if they, if an event that they need to open a case that they have these mechanisms available to them despite the socio-economic situation? Thank you for that. Um, I'd say from experience there's a lot that still needs to be done in terms of educating the public in, um, in terms of where they can go to if they have a dispute. Like she, like Sian mentioned, uh, the small claims court. I've had a number of people who walked into the office, they have claims like under 15,000 and should he or should say I've been sitting with this problem for a number of years now I don't know where to go I need to get my money back and you tell them about the small claims and they're surprised and it's for someone like um, someone who is literally in the law they would know it's basic stuff and but it's we assume that people know but they don't know mm. so there is for 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 our part as pro bono we would have to go and hand out leaflets telling people that this is what you do if you can come in if you want to ask if you want to get assistance so in some cases the cases that you need to just oh this is where you need to go it's just a matter of telling them oh you need to go to the master's office or 
this is where um, you can get assistance with a specific issue that you have. So in some cases, it's not litigation per se. It's just pointing them in the right direction. Mm. So, yeah. We have a WhatsApp in from 8926, and Uzair, I'll direct this at you. Uh, I know you're <laughs> eagerly waiting for this question. The WhatsApp says, do criminals reserve or deserve the right, in actual fact, uh, to have access to the, to the judicial system if they have removed the right from the victim? Uh, certainly, the Akira, um, just because there is an allegation, first of all, that um, an accused person has committed a certain offence, um, that does not limit them to access to this right, because they themselves are also citizens of our country. And again, in um, legal talk, there is something called the presumption of innocence, and someone is um, proven until guilt up. Uh, Innocent until proven guilty, sorry. Um, and so every citizen has that right to access um, legal resources um, within the judicial system, regardless of whether or not they're accused person, um, because only until, until such time that they are actually found guilty um, are they seen as a criminal, so to say. Max, would you like to add to the conversation? Uh, just one addition there. Um, I think that even if um, someone has been convicted of a crime, yeah. um, another question arises then, and, and that is that do all their rights at that stage merely fall away? Mm -mm. Um, and do we want to live in a, a sort of eye for an eye society? Yeah. Um, and many argue that even if one has been convicted of a crime, it doesn't follow that we should uh, not look at the conditions that people face in prison or look yeah. to rehabilitate people back into society. Mm. Mm. Going to the issue of an increase in legal aid services, I, I ask this, pose this question across the board. Is there a need for more legal aid services or is there a need to redefine or re restructure our judicial system? Um, the Akira, I would say that there's certainly a need for um, more legal aid services. I previously actually was an attorney at Legal Aid, um, and I've also worked for the Department of Justice and Constitutional Development, so I've kind of had experience on both ends of the stick. Um, in terms of legal aid, legal aid has done amazing work across the country. Um, they have offices all over, they've got satellite offices, but again, um, the question is whether or not people in rural areas have access to that information or those services. Um, and then on the other side of things, there is government who has been trying to plow back into our communities by making um, access to justice um, accessible via service points and having access to justice week and wills week and that type of thing but for me personally it comes down to educating our community members on the rights on their rights so that they can understand their rights in terms of the constitution so that they can also then understand that in terms of section 36 of the constitution every right also is subject to a limitation mm. Um, and that no right is limitless um, because a lot of the time our people believe that they've got rights but they don't also understand that to go with that rights they have responsibilities mm. um, so I hope that answers your question Max I see you eagerly <laughs> waiting to <laughs> weigh in 
one more time, sorry, I just wanted to add, I think it is encouraging that the Legal Practice Act, which is a piece of legislation which came into force in 2014 and is slowly coming into force in a staggered way, um, it, it seems to envis envisage the minister down the line uh, making regulations for community service as a component of articles um, when graduates are training to become lawyers. And I know that's something that uh, some student groups have been pushing for for a while. Mm. It could address, with adequate supervision, it could address the access to justice problem and the under-resourcing at legal aid if you had uh, law graduates coming through to assist. And um, the Act also makes provision not just for assisting with legal aid, but assisting at the South African Human Rights Commission. You could um, imagine assistance in the courts um, and assisting with just legal education initiatives such as this one. But how then would we, you know, we made mention of our rural areas. We have issues of tribal lines as well and the structures of tribal and uh, and the different cultural norms we have in different communities how do we then in these areas where you find that culture is still the dominant and uh, the dominant structure how do we reconcile the two uh, I think we can pass this question to Ellen because uh, she's thinking quite deeply <laughs> yeah, can you rephrase it I'm trying to understand how and think how to I could better respond yeah. to it, but I'm thinking. Yeah, so in yeah. In, instead of superimposing our legal system and the, what the Constitution yeah. says, how would we reconcile the two in terms of bringing together your tribal lines and uh, what yeah. uh, the right to equality says under the judicial system? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you, you got me there. I, I, I was thinking back to my customary law class. Yeah. You find that sometimes what works in the urban city won't like mm. urban area won't work for someone that is far out in eastern mm. cape yeah so i remember this one discussion that we had when the professor said sometimes you'd need to engage with like the community leaders you'd you'd need to engage with people who have like some sort of weight in the community and have them spear campaigns in in, in, in ensuring that the law is applicable to even those areas far out because you might think that we're going into a cis but at the same time you're offending them mm. so you need to be sensitive to their cultures and their practices and uh, when you come in and you want to educate them because they would think okay now you you're being superior you're being educated on us and all of that so the context matters and how you approach different issues and different matters depending where you're situated and where they're situated, that really comes mm. into play. And do you feel that the judicial system has been structured in such a way that it can be inclusive of tribal lines and the structures of different tribes and even religions for that matter? I would say no. Uh, that's that's just my view because I would, uh, I would refer to um, something that I was researching on last year, mus Muslim marriages. It's 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 a deviation, to, mm. but it's not it's, it's access to justice in any case, because Muslim marriages are at this point not recognised in South Africa. Mm. Mm. So there's hardships, there's a lot of things that flow from non-recognition of Muslim marriages. So you find that with even with the customary law aspect of uh, justice, there's there's what works for a certain tribe, and there's there's been adjudication and it works for another tribe but it's not been implemented to, to mm. work for a, a certain tribe so there is still that balance that needs to be struck to accommodate all areas of mm. our society. Sin, would you like to weigh in? Um, okay, um, so just going back to I mean whether our judicial system um, accommodates different cultures and all of that. Um, I think that 
on paper or on the face of it, no, it doesn't. I, I would have to agree there. Um, however, if you look at the substance of some of our court decisions over the years, um, so maybe procedurally, um, it's, there's some difficulty in that regard. Um, different cultures, different um, different uh, tribes living in different communities, rural communities, may not understand or want to subject themselves to the procedures of our um, very strict and rigid court system. However, um, our courts have gone a long way and I mean just with the um, Constitution and the Constitutional Court um, there definitely is a deeper recognition and understanding of um, the need to cross those um, cultural boundaries. Um, I mean, there's, there is case law that is not, I mean, our, our courts have recognized um, same-sex marriages and our courts have recognized um, rights, the right to equality and the right to equal treatment. Um, so while there's definitely still um, a far way to go, as you say, Muslim marriages mm -hmm. aren't um, recognized in, in the same context, um, I think our courts have gone um, quite far in in the short space of time mm. i mean our democracy democracy is still quite young mm. but they have gone um to some extent to really recognize what has been entrenched in our constitution you mentioned this idea of rights on paper versus uh, you know the the just the rights being actually acted upon in substantive equality mm -hmm. max within the context of south africa has there been a disparity between having equal rights on paper uh, versus actually being able to enjoy our rights mm -hmm. um yes i think there has often been a disjuncture between uh, the promises of the constitution on paper versus reality um our constitution is unusually generous in providing, for example, for socio-economic rights, um, justiciable socio-economic rights to access health care, education, social security, etc. Um, and in the context of um, a country with such levels of poverty and inequality, uh, to a certain degree these rights are more aspirational in character than um, immediately realizable and the constitution in fact makes provision for their progressive realization within available resources having said that um, we shouldn't throw the baby out of the bathwater and forget that these rights have proved a solid basis for litigation which has led to real change in the lives of people you think of the anti-retroviral anti litigation um, or access to housing and evictions jurisprudence um, there have been real victories um, mm -hmm. for people on the basis of those rights. You mentioned the, the victories. Do you think that within South Africa, especially post-apartheid, that a victory is waiting a few, many years before that is realized? Or is a victory actually having the court hear it immediately and not have lengthy legal processes because if you see in terms of the land claims that we mentioned over and over in terms because it's so unique to our constitution that we protect this um, is a victory really a victory when communities have waited many years to see their goals realized okay if i can maybe try and yeah and and draw on that i'd say um <coughs> I think it becomes it becomes a matter of of empty victories in some situations because if you if 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 I can uh, draw on the Krutbom case uh, the, the constitutional court ruled in, in a favor but she ended up dying without 
having access to the house mm. that she was fighting for. Mm. And if you if you um, go back to the silicosis uh, cases, people are dying without having. Uh, mm. So it's 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 right sometimes without remedy, when people actually need for it to to actually materialize into something that they can hold. Mm. So sometimes it's. It's 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 fair enough to say that there is much that ha that has been done, but the implementation of of whatever rulings takes quite quite longer than you'd expect. Mm. So you find that people end up end up not enjoying whatever yeah. the court pronounced on. Yeah. So you so there's there's still there's still it's, challenges. It's quite there. interesting you mentioned that because quite recently and we've mentioned this in our previous shows of Constitution Matters uh, in Constantia we found that a number of the land claimants had actually passed away mm. because they've waited so long to see the the reality of actually getting back their land. So Uzaid, I know that you have been listening attentively. <laughs> I think that you you deserve Absolutely. your your word. Um, Zakira, um, in my opinion, I think that there are many legal professionals who would make use of the term a miscarriage of justice mm. um, and although we've got certain provisions that um, enable certain victories whether or not those victories become realizable at a later stage and, and people are unable to benefit from it immediately um, is questionable but it, again it comes back to the, the point that uh, my colleague Max uh, pointed out in saying that it is progressive in nature and so it's there's a fine line between mm -hmm. the two. We can't take away from the fact that it is a victory um, in essence, but whether or not it's a realizable victory mm -hmm. in, in having people access um, that victory immediately or, or soon thereafter is, is another thing. Um, and so that's where it comes in in terms of whether or not that doesn't give rise to a miscarriage of justice. And so, I mean, in, in our office alone, um, we've thus far received at least two um, members of public who have come in and advised that they um, have been on the waiting list um, for housing, RDP houses, um, for in excess of two decades. Mm -hmm. Now that, in my opinion, is a miscarriage of justice and that in itself is a public interest matter because it's one thing being on a waiting list, but it's another thing having mm -hmm. to wait 20 years for you to get that article. So just house. before the break, I know we mentioned uh, the right of the elite to access the judicial judicial recourse. Do, we, do you perhaps uh, agree with uh, many who say that uh, those who were privileged under apartheid continue to be privileged within the judicial system because uh, when terms of land claims for instance uh, the previously privileged who live on those lands still argue that you know they 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 they, they have this claim this claim to the land because they got it their families got it for habit for generations so they should not be giving it back um Zakira, what i can say on privilege is that uh, we cannot um take away from what has happened in the past and we can't um we can't ignore what has happened in the past and we can't ignore that privilege is rife and it has existed but again at some point in time i do believe that our people has to take responsibility mm. themselves and yeah. and i think once we reach that point um will we then be yeah. able to move forward we'll take a quick break and we'll continue with this interesting conversation when we return
Welcome back to Constitutional Matters. I'm your host, Dakira Desai, and joining me in studio is Uzair Adams, Ellen Bariwando, Max Taylor, and Cian Fagan. In this episode of Constitution Matters, we discuss the right to equality. Before the break, we had quite an interesting discussion of whether or not uh, the judicial system is only accessible by the elite. And right now, we uh, turn our attention to Max, who is eagerly preparing to answer. We During the break, we discussed whether or not whether or not government or the state should be responsible for leveling the inequality between the wealthy and the poor. Max, I know that you'd like to weigh in here. Thanks, Akira. Um, I think absolutely the state has a responsibility. Um, Section 34 of the Constitution, as we've mentioned, says that everyone has the right to have any dispute resolved in a court of law. Um, and the state is part of transforming South African society post-apartheid and of course it, it, it plays a role and has to continue doing so. I think maybe just one thing to mention on that score is that it's not only the state mm. which has a role to play. Mm. Um, we've seen that the constitution gives a lot of scope for civil society and Absolutely, NGOs yeah. to litigate and to bring cases to the courts mm. um, and corporations can should come to the party as well. So I think we shouldn't just sit back and say it's only the state. Um, the state is one of several actors which have a role to play. We actually have a question that came in from 5138. If, um, see, and if you could perhaps take this very quickly, um, the person is saying that uh, the, the rule of law today is uh, based on the colonial laws. Now, we know the Constitution was meant to transform what happened in the past and bring it in and, and include everyone in the new democracy. Do you feel that that has taken place? Um, I think that to a certain extent um, I understand where the question comes from but at the same time I think the the Constitution is all-embracing um, and it really does try and um, um, it, it does try and achieve this aim of this transformative constitution and it really does um, I mean your right to equality it says everyone is equal before the law mm. um, access your your bill of rights in general your access to the courts everyone has access mm. um, has the right to access the courts everyone has the right to adequate housing um, I don't yeah I don't believe that it's um, uh, based on um, colonial mm. legislation which was very um, fragmented and um, yeah. not not applicable to everyone. In our last two, mo two minutes, we have uh, two questions that we'd like to unpack very quickly. Ellen, do you think that lawyers have a moral obligation um, in their private capacity to assist in alleviating the inequality of accessing justice? I'd say that they do because they have the know-how, they have the knowledge and uh, tools at their um, disposal to assist communities would otherwise not have access to justice. So um, I would say that maybe it comes, it should come from, from during the studies that they they educated on the need to provide community service, which would now filter into when they are uh, professionals, in uh, in having that moral sense to say, I, I could give this um, mm. particular number yeah. of hours in a year in yeah. assisting indigent communities. Uh, Cian uh, or Max, I know you'd like to say something. Um, yeah, I would agree with that. I think that given the costs of legal advice and given that lawyers have a specialized skill um, which they can offer to society, um, they should absolutely uh, give some of those services to the poor for free. 
And just on that note as well, I mean, the only way to even progressively realize this right in terms of Section 34, um, right of access to the courts, the only way to really realize that right is to um, join forces. I mean, you as an individual legal practitioner definitely have a moral obligation to provide your services Mm. so that people that don't understand the processes and um, don't Mm. understand how Mm. the court system works do actually have fully realizable right to access those courts. Mm. Uzair, in our last few seconds of the show, do you think the state is actually living up to its obligation with regards to Section 34, the access to courts, and Section 38, enforcement of rights? Uh, To be honest, I do believe that the state is living up to its obligation to many out there it might not seem as if the the state is but again um, we are 23 years young in our democracy and um, we need to think about the fact that Mm. a lot of progress has been made awesome that's a rough really interesting discussion the time has come to an end uh, thank you to my guests Uzair Adams, Ellen Bariwando, Max Taylor and Cian Fagan and a big thank you to our technician Abida Dixon tune in to VOC 91.3 FM next week at 6 p.m. for the seventh episode of Constitutional Matters just a reminder to our listeners that the views expressed in this show is not necessarily the views of the Voice of the Cape its management or its staff you are listening to Constitutional Matters with myself Dakira Desai Assalamu alaikum and good evening.